This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 rrs weekly analysis and discussion of ecology, economy and energy viewed through a lens of resilience and group hug sessions. Bushy's my name. As always, the co-conspirator in the studio is the gentleman's gentleman, the inquisitive inquisitor, Adam Grubb. How you be? A verbal hug? Yeah. Oh, very nice. <laughs> um, you've been good? I have been moderately good. You're keeping your bone marrow warm? <laughs> it's been cold, eh? It has been rather cold. Now, I've got the... I ordered in these... Um, they're like basically sleeping bags for your feet from Canada, like places that are really properly cold. Because I don't yeah, use heating at home, but I, I prefer to acclimatise. But, but if you can protect the feet... Yeah. Yeah, you, you sweet, you sail through. The rest will follow... And joining us on rotation, fresh-faced, newlywed that she is, is the lovely Kate Dundas. Hello. Congratulations. The wife. The wife. The wifey. Oh, he didn't start to call you the old ball and chain straight away, did he? Yes. Ah, oh, <laughs> Dan. Yes, uh, the new wife. Very well done. Uh, bicycle whisperer, weekly panellist and all-round fabulous person, Jed McCartney, is running the show tonight. And this evening we'll be talking urban planning with James Lamore reed James is an urban and regional planning professional with a commitment to achieving planning and urban design outcomes that enhance a sense of place, livability, resilience and equity. Uh, in the name of all things transparent, uh, I should mention that he is a colleague of Kate's and it was our feeling that his experience and outlook best fit the shape of our show. We'll be talking to him a little bit later in the hour. Um, Adam, do you want to go first this week with what caught your eye? What caught my eye? Yeah. It's a bit of a geeky one, I'm afraid. We might be stepping a little bit into bite into it territory, Triple R's uh technological show. I was going to say geek show, but they wouldn't be ashamed of that. Uh, but... <laughs> You know, we talk about systems that create, uh, that grow through the fault lines of the old or new, new innovative systems, and sometimes I turn a, an eye towards the geekosphere. And a couple of days ago, I'd never heard of Ethereum. Have you guys heard of it? It's, it's, no. It's a little bit like... Not until you heard of it. Yeah, well, it got into the news this week because it's a, it's a little bit like Bitcoin. It's one of these distributed cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. which uh, isn't controlled by any government or anything. Uh, and it's a, it's, since, since Bitcoin hit the news and became popular and now billions of dollars are traded in it, there's been a, a flood of other startups trying to get alternatives off the ground with slightly different So you know, because the money variables. doesn't exist, can you just, could I just say tomorrow, oh, I have this new money called Kate's money? Yeah, you can. I mean, you... you <laughs> 
you can do that. You don't need to do a cryptocurrency for that. You can just write a, something on a piece of like paper an and, and try. And if you're charming and authoritative enough, like maybe say you better use this at the local shop or I'll hit you in the in the head with my Glaswegian kiss, <laughs> then people might start using it. They might f- feel um, forced to. Anyway, all money <laughs> is just a kind of an agreed upon shared uh, consensus that it has value and anyway since since bitcoin uh, nothing has really come along that's really changed the paradigm until ethereum it's it's a bit different it's a little bit like if uh bitcoin is like an app it's a bit more like an operating system because besides being a currency it allows you to program contracts into the coins or in, into the into the currency and in fact yeah. it's basically like a distributed computing system you can you can do anything that a that a computer program can do but just out there in the peer to peer cloud Anyway, so it's a little bit hard to explain, but basically it's this... It could be revolutionary, but it got into the news this week because one of the major uses of it... There's about a billion and a half US dollars equivalent traded in it at the moment or held in it. There's about 150 million of that. So it's a decent chunk of that in this thing called the DAO. And that is like a mutual fund... So you can invest your money in this, but there's no hedge fund manager. There's no one getting a $3 million paycheck to manage mm. your money. Outrageous. Instead, it's, it's encoded into the money itself, these certain rules, and so you get to vote Ooh. if you own it. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah, and mm. it cuts it. So it's really exciting stuff, and there's all these kind of to, ideas that you could... Do you have to pass could, a test? Because uh, you could just go and vote on stupid stuff. With, yeah, but it's you could, but it's your money, Kate. It's <laughs> but your I wouldn't money. have a clue what to vote on. I'd be like, trying to vote, yeah, I want that. <laughs> that sounds nice. Yeah. But anyway, one of the things that Canadian happened this week slippers. is that a hacker figured out how to withdraw money. It found a little loophole mm. in in the particular, the, the DAO's uh, contract in such a way that I was just watching as the numbers went up. You could see it live until eventually he'd withdrawn over 50 million US dollars worth into but could you like, his or her or their account. Nobody knows. It's anonymous. Can you turn that into actual money to go and buy shopping with? Uh, yeah. Well, you have to find somebody to... to so who has the actual cash money money? Well, I mean, it, it's a little bit like Bitcoin. You, you don't find a lot of local traders that will use it. But you might find somebody... So you could end up to, with all of this money, but all you can buy is like... Well, Very know, the, particular computer things. Well, I think it, there was a famous breakthrough with Bitcoin several years ago when uh, the first time somebody ordered a pizza with Bitcoin, they spent 10,000 Bitcoins to do it and they convinced somebody to, to go to the pizza shop and get, get a pizza for them and, and deliver it to their house. Those Ugh. Bitcoins are now worth like, what, 600? Heaps. Yeah, like yeah. millions of dollars. But they, but they did say, you know, it was a really good pizza so they don't regret it. <laughs> Anyway, it was, but I, I don't know if this is going to destroy Ethereum, but it, it's giving it a shake-up. It's kind of a rubbish name. Yeah. It's but the, but like the, the type of things that it could do um, might be like paddock-to-plate tracking because every single transaction is, um, is tracked and open and anybody can see it. Ah. So a fascinating thing to keep an eye on if it survives this, uh, this, this latest crisis. Mm. Indeedy. I'll jump in very quickly um, because this... 
This is uh, touching on the urban planning discussion we'll be having tonight, and it was a, an article, it, it appeared on Resilience, but appeared elsewhere as well, um, originally published on energyskeptic.com, and it was called Unpave Low Traffic Roads to Save Energy and Money. And the reason that this... So the US has 4.1 million miles of roads, and 1.9 million of those are paved and 2.2 million are gravel. And about three million of those miles, so three quarters of those roads have less than 2,000 vehicles a day and less than 15% of all the traffic. Um, Many of these roads should never have been paved to begin with, but now they're at a point where the cost of construction and asphalt and energy, which was once so cheap, well, now maintaining it has become far too expensive. I thought this was a really interesting one from a planning and... um, a planning perspective because we usually think of things like planning and, and development and so forth as doing stuff and making new stuff and this could be an example of something that we might see more of in the future which is undoing stuff mm. um, and so like a, a similar example of this might be where you see in Detroit really broken derelict and abandoned old areas of the city have been purchased by local groups and businesses and all the housing stock which is wrecked removed and the blocks planted out with high value trees and and more open land created to improve the amenity of the city and so forth like that in this situation what they're looking at doing is rather than try to repair all these old roads which they can't justify the cost of they're going to remove the surface layer and just leave it as a compacted gravel road um it stood out to me as well because all these backwater rural roads probably got sealed at a time well they did it was really cheap to do this back in the day it was politically popular to pave roads no matter how little they got used because paving roads employs people and you buy all these materials and you've got all this labor force you've got to employ and a real drive to develop and it was really the low-hanging fruit for a politician looking to prove that they're outside doing something but now here we are entering an era of probably having to prioritize very differently and view projects through a very different lens and so this was, I mean, I could go on and on about this article, and I don't need to. It's on resilience.org, and it was called Unpaved Low Traffic Roads to Save Energy and Money, and it sort of informed a way that I look at lots of things. I de- definitely when I'm you know, uh, advising clients if they're, you know, it's a good place to buy somewhere or not, if there's, if you're the only person at the end of a road and there's there's just some general policy to keep that maintained at the moment but i i just don't think it's a a thing to depend upon going into the future yeah. and, and assume that you might be the one maintaining it yeah. and that has a big overhead a lot of the rural and regional work that we do the community's top priorities are often having roads paved yeah people love it well yeah um so that's certainly not something that people aren't thinking about i cannot imagine going out to the regions and being like we're going to unpave your roads (laughs) (laughs) but uh, it's not an election platform is it uh, no i'm going to unplug your internet yeah yeah well there's plenty of people who don't have internet out there but it's really expensive to maintain roads so your your platform isn't i'm going to unpave your road i'm going to build your hospital yes and we'll Yes. But you can't just unpave a road then leave the top layer there. You don't have to go and compact no, it every night again. No, they've got to remove it. But this is interesting to me as well because I'm I'm a, a bit of a closet train um, spotter from time to time. And out where I live in the northwest, there used to be heaps of trains branching off that Bendigo <laughs> line in all directions. There was probably four or five branch lines between Melbourne and Bendigo that went off to you know Dalesford and Reedsdale and up to Lancefield and all those sorts of things. And a lot of these have shut down now because they couldn't support themselves. And in some cases, some of those train lines, one in particular, which was the most famous political white elephant in Victorian state history, was the 
Lanceford to Kilmore line, which cost a fortune and joined Lancefield to Kilmore in the 1890s. And no sooner was it opened, they realised this is horrible terrain and no one lives out here. <laughs> but someone got rich doing it, right. and that was decommissioned inside five years. But there's lots of... People sort yeah, it's funny, you're saying, you, if you went into an area and said, we're going to unpave your roads, people would be up in arms, but they kind of don't think too much about these train lines that have disappeared. Or reinstating the train lines. Yeah. They do. Well. Uh, do you go and hang out in your Mac uh, on the platform? I don't think a a Mac, it's sort of more of a bluey. Maybe that's the same thing. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Maybe it's a Mac. Maybe you don't know what a bluey is. It's a yeah. warm jacket. Oh. Yeah, I'm kind an Australian like icon. <laughs> I don't have to... It's one of the questions you get if, when when you get um, national, national, like a driza yeah. bone sort of thing. A bit like that. I have got a driza bone. Really got it? some homework. Okay, for me, Katie. Anyway. Look, we'll discuss this further. <laughs> but what's your article this week, Katie? Uh, mine was in Medium, and it's the privatisation of childhood play. And Adam was talking about play a little bit last week, and this goes on the theme of that. So kids used to play outside more. They would hopscotch through the streets, assembling games of stickball and breaking bottles for fun. And then children, uh, adults would tell their children to be home for dinner and then forget about them until dark. But apparently, that golden age of unstructured play is over. And we played less than our parents and our children will potentially play less than we did, which has all of these terrible knock-on effects on health and relationships and everything. Um, but this article talks about this uh, thing called a play date, which I think is very an American term for aspirational parents, where the parent becomes your child's agent and chauffeur. And the idea is that the, these kids are so busy, they need adult secretaries to pencil in time with their friends. And they're saying it's both silly and real. Take New York mum Tamara Mose. So her son and daughter's weekly schedule includes all of these things. Piano, kumon, which is something about private tutoring, taekwondo, regular tutoring, dance and soccer. And she's lucky if she has time for a play date. But then she goes on to talk about what play dates mean. Um, and it sounds quite terrifying. So according to this lady, Mose, the biggest difference between simple play and official play dates are that play dates are work. And they're not just scheduled, they're prepared, they have expenses and they can succeed or fail. And a parent who serves the wrong kind of crunchy cheese snack could be jeopardised. Their family's place in the social hierarchy. Kids play, adults, or more accurately mums, make play dates. And then she goes on further to say that you have to manage these play dates. So it's a bit like a social network. You have to, or a a kind of professional network. You pick the mums who, as an adult, you want to network with. And then go and have this scheduled time where your kids play and managing a kid's play schedule ensures they don't pick up any bad influences that will steer them from the path to college and success on the job market I want to cry, oh my god it's terrible so like royal marriages, concerted uh, parents set up play dates that are socially advantageous for the parents themselves and also for these child's imagined futures terrifying, terrifying bloody hell, oh my god, we we use more like resources than per person than at any time in human history and we've managed to turn that into private forms of hell like that (laughs) private forms of hell but i mean interestingly she says as a social phenomenon play dates are something like private schools so wealthier parents remove their kids from public and sequester them into this special place with a guest list and a cover charge um, and take them outside of public space and 
when wealthy people don't use a public resource like public space and play spaces, mm. it tends to degrade. Not because the rich hold things together, but because the government cares less about people who aren't rich. And this goes for the actual paving on the streets and also the symbolic space for unstructured play. Yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier about how the best types of play spaces are completely natural spaces, but those types of spaces in an urban context are often very difficult to get to, particularly if you don't have a car. Mm. Um, so all of the little parks and gardens around the city um, need to be designed really well to allow children to play in a natural way. Yeah. Um, but in America, because the rich people are taking their kids outside of those environments and to privatise spaces then these spaces are getting much more degraded and she finishes off by saying we are reproducing inequality today through the enclosure of a play date and through the privatisation of play we are reproducing inequality in our children Jesus, that is sad (laughs) I kind of pray I think for the most part when we send our two off to a, a, a let's call it a play date for the sake of the argument the main prerequisite is to make sure that the pants they've got on were the ones they already got horse shit on yesterday <laughs> because it's just less washing <laughs> that's yeah. kind of our prerequisite most of the time don't wear your school shoes because you'll wreck them wear the pants that you got shit on yesterday <laughs> i think there's something in that <laughs> so everyone should have a bag of horse shit in their house to dirty up the kids pants with um, I don't think that was the lesson. No, that wasn't the lesson, not at all. That's very sad, Kate. I feel quite affected by that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not everybody. No. Maybe just Americans. Well, I think it's a lot of Australians. It's that whole thing of... It's that safety concern, oh. though, isn't it, as well? Most of the time, something yes. horrible doesn't happen. Yeah. Most days. Yeah. To most people. But then something horrible will happen... And we all wear it and we absorb it quite horribly and we affect our behaviour as a result. Shit out. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is where you are and Greening the Apocalypse is the show. James Lamore-Reed is Managing Director at Planosphere, a planning, urban design and landscape architecture consultancy based in Melbourne. An urban planner by profession, he is currently the Victorian President of the Planning Institute of Australia. Outside of his working life, James' broad interests have included a wide variety of community roles and at various times he has volunteered as a community advocate in nursing homes, led the campaign for an Australian Republic in Geelong, edited a planning magazine, helped set up 3,000 acres and established a productive garden in the Melbourne CBD. In his spare time, he is a lawn bowler, urban beekeeper and melancholic state supporter. <laughs> yes, I <know. laughs> Welcome, James. <laughs> Thank you. Go Saints. I hadn't spotted that. We'll have to have a chat after the game. So... You work in urban planning, and I said at the top of the show, you and Kate are colleagues. This is a great show for Adam and I because we have no idea about this. So talk to us, like, what's urban planning? What? It's not just drawing streets on a piece of paper and saying, put it there, is it? No, it's not. In fact, we had a T-shirt when I was in Utah that said, uh, plan any good towns lately. It was an old looning cartoon. Um, it, it's actually very hard to define. I've been doing it for 25 or so years. Um, one of my favourite planners is a bloke called Mitch Silver. He's the... Parks and Gardens Commissioner in New York, and he calls planners the advocates for the future and defenders of the public interest. Nice. That's pretty highfalutin, but I, I like that. I think that we're spatial, spatial specialists. We're in the business of change, which is why planners are offering the front of controversy. People are a bit touchy te- about change. And, you know, in our day-to-day life, we assimilate lots of information about economics, about the environment, about social trends, and, you know, we try and plan a way forward for the benefit of all of us. 
Indeed. And who are your who are your clients? And who or, and when you have a plan, who implements it? Well, that does vary quite a lot. In, in our particular firm, a lot of our clients are either local or state government, but we you know also do work for the private sector as well. In terms of implementation, um, sometimes it will be through local councils, through planning schemes mm-hmm. and planning permits. That's, I think, how most people interact with the system. Um, but it's, sometimes it's investment infrastructure. Um, sometimes it um, might be community-led uh, projects like the ones we've been doing up in northeastern Victoria, and Kat's been heavily involved with that one. So you said that you try and incorporate all these big picture social social trends and uh, economics and all the rest. So what what are some of the main challenges that you see facing a city like Melbourne? Oh, look, there's a whole lot, and, and you only have to read the paper to, to you know be aware of what many of those are. Um, housing affordability is a huge one with the way that our house prices are rising. Access to healthy food is, mm-hmm. is an ongoing issue. Um, access to education and jobs as our central cities are, are gentrifying, getting harder and harder to find good jobs <coughs> in the suburbs, and our, our manufacturing uh, basis is, is essentially collapsed. We hear about um, congestion and public transport mobility issues, but there's also more fundamental things like just decent spaces for people to interact across generations, across cultures, yeah. in a safe way. Yeah, yeah, that's one I really notice. Uh, even even living in a fairly walkable part of the city in Brunswick, uh, there's none of that public um, square type space. You, you're either your experience of public space is footpaths and roads, and if you want to talk to somebody, you go into a. Oh, I'm sure that there are some parks which are which are pretty good, but um, usually it's you go into an establishment, so you're in a commercial space. There seems to be something particular to the Australia, like because through Europe, there's and, and through obviously Latin America and lots of parts of the world, there, there are these like well, they're called third places, aren't they? That's right, and and I think one thing that concerns me a bit is is that we are commodifying our public interactions quite a bit. So yeah. you have to buy something or pay for something to gain entry to a space. So we need to create spaces and places for interaction that you are free you don't have to pay mm. um i think we're getting better at that though we you know we used to have this concept of open spaces being very much about parks and gardens and slides and swings i think more and more as we go down the path of urban design we are looking at how we can better use spaces mm. and and street spaces i think one of the revolutions over the last 25 years in the city of melbourne has been the expansion of footpaths the creation of really pleasant places just sit and watch people or talk or watch a busker or whatever Mm -hmm. i just um bringing you into it kate i mean james you were just saying off air before you grew up in the eastern suburbs of melbourne kate you've come from the uk older cities cities that well and truly predate the car um, and are probably made up of much more you know little cell localized hubs and things what do you see as some of the really good strategies that have happened in UK cities that Melbourne could probably look to mimic? Question without warning. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I actually thought about that question when you'd written it um, down. And Glasgow, the structure of Glasgow is very similar to Melbourne. It's based on a grid um, with suburbs that radiate from it. Um, there's more integrated public transport in Glasgow 
and uh, do you mean by that so the bus actually waits for the train to pull in and then pulls off like you don't watch the bus disappear as your train pulls in is that matching up is that what you're saying with integrated well, public transport I think that and there's just more of it oh, so okay. there's more trains and there's a subway network um, more buses um but then Melbourne's getting better at that as well. There's more of the radial mm. bus network now that meets up with the train tracks or with the train timetable. Um, what else is better in the UK? <laughs> uh, the kebabs. Well, definitely the fritter rules. <laughs> <laughs> um, with, like, with regards to a network of public spaces, I think what's happened in Glasgow recently is very similar to what's happened in Melbourne. So trying to accommodate pedestrians and cyclists over private vehicles so you get a lot of um, widening of pavements and reduction in vehicle space mm-hmm. um, reconsidering how you can provide more public space to the city um, so you don't have to buy something to just hang out in the street yeah. <coughs> so if you talk about all the infrastructure um, that's let's say we call that the bones of the city effectively so when you flesh that out with veins and muscle and nerves and things like that that pulse how does well, that's nice the pulse the, 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 nice the, way to describe it comparing to people to veins <laughs> um how does well uh, uh, there, we've got that example running so I might as well go with it. how do you see the interaction with the city by glaswegians as differing from melbourne and uh, james i don't know if you've been to glasgow if you're able to answer that question at all or melbourneians no. are much better behaved Glaswegians are definitely much more anarchic and will do what they please. So they'll completely take ownership of the streets. So you see a lot more um, ad hoc activity, I think. Um, Lots more gathering where... um, Well, I suppose it's when the sun shines, people just get out of the house and accommodate themselves in public spaces. Mm. You say Um, for for good or bad? For good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely for good, absolutely. In this... In the suburbs of Melbourne, it depends where you are. You often don't see many people, but that's got to do with density as opposed to mm. um, how people interact with the street. I guess in Glasgow, there's much more density, so you have a lot more people using the streets. So it makes, makes it feel more vibrant mm. and more alive in some locations. In others, it's kind of terrifying to go out and about in Glasgow <laughs> because it's, it's uh, the demographic situation is very different so there's places I wouldn't go in Glasgow whereas I don't feel like that at all in Melbourne mm. I think our streets have certainly enlivened in the last 20 years or so particularly in the inner suburbs I mean it's amazing to go and see the Melbourne CBD now on a Sunday mm-hmm. compared to say 20 years ago it is so lively every day seems like a public holiday when you're in, in the middle of the CBD on a, on a Sunday and I'm finding that is expanding out into the suburbs one thing, I, talking about other countries, one thing I did notice in Japan was it's very hard to find a seat in a place that you don't have to pay for. You have to go to a cafe or buy some food to sit down in Tokyo. Yeah, right. So very interesting. They haven't got vending machines next to park benches or anything yet, have they? Oh, they've got vending machines everywhere <laughs> for everything. Well, yeah, we won't go there. Triple R, not for everyone. For anyone. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR, and tonight we are talking to James Lamore Reed. He is Managing Director at Planosphere and the Victorian President of the Planning Institute of Australia. And you've been talking a little bit, James, about how you see your role as incorporating big picture knowledge and 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 then uh, coming up with interesting solutions to it. I'm sort of in one way wondering, well, 
you've got to do what your client asks as well. Mm. And yet there is this interesting project coming up which could be something which incorporates quite broad ideas. So we could talk about that and it's called the Resilient Melbourne Strategy, which is part of the uh, an International 100 Resilient Cities Project. Uh, it, it occurred to me, actually, that it's funny that we talk about resilience these days. It could be a sign of the times. It's not. It's a long way from the 1950s optimism, isn't it? It's, it's almost a defense, defensive strategy. You know, plainly it comes from a bit of existential fear about what happens with extreme weather events, but also financial issues. We're, we're just a little bit more aware of our own tenuousness as a, as a, as a city. I, and, I think defi- definitely. I think there was yeah. a lot of faith in science in the 1950s and 60s, and that let us down a fair bit. Now, I'm, I'm an advocate for science, but we've, I think we've become a bit more sophisticated. We've been through several picks and troughs in terms of technology and economy and environment, mm. and now we're a bit more pragmatic, if you like, and realise that we've got to prepare ourselves to, to ride with these ups and downs. Yeah. And yet when I did look into this project, the Resilient Melbourne Strategy, it seemed to be like they were as much as possible putting a much more positive spin on this word resilience and trying to think of uh, things that will improve people's quality of life and improve connectedness between people. And I guess what this might be the kind of thing that you try and do as a planner is come up with solutions which tick multiple boxes at once and that would be things like okay improve the resilience so if a shock comes that the city doesn't turn into chaos uh at the same time come up with solutions that don't increase the environmental or economic conditions which created those shocks in the first place and also do something that is like makes it a nicer place to live. So is it possible to come up with solutions which tick all those boxes at once? And do you have any suggestions? If, if they asked you, uh, James, what, would, what, what suggestions would you give to the Resilient Melbourne strategy? Well, I think in answer to your first question, you've almost described the objectives of planning in Victoria, which are part of our legislation. They, they do ask us to balance up economic and environmental and social objectives. I also think that most planners are fairly altruistic and, and quite optimistic. So we do see challenges, but our job is to you know, find a way forward through those challenges. So the, the, the whole idea of the resilient Melbourne strategy, I think, is a fantastic one and it is multifaceted. It's not just about economy. It's not just about environment. It's about a whole range of factors. Hmm. In terms of what I would do, we're faced with some real challenges in, in Melbourne and in most Western cities. Most people don't realise that we're actually one of the fastest growing Western cities in the world. Mm. Um, our population's grown by about a quarter since the turn of the century and we're expected to have about 8 million people mm. by about 2050. So that's massive change and we can sit on our hands and ignore it or we can get involved and do something about it. And, and I see some of the critical things that will be happening are the kind of things we've talked about getting more affordable housing in places that are accessible for people, um, improving mobility and accessibility for people. We are ha- we do have an ageing population and with that will come mobility issues and, and more disability mm. um, and, and just general equity in, in terms of our use of space. Mm. So the, the kind of things I'd like to see are, are more flexible approaches to housing, how, how we define our home, how we define... Um, how people can live in a home, so uh, more flexibility in our planning rules around spaces and, and numbers of people that could occupy a home. It'd be great to see different ways in terms of um, 
financing of, of homes for in terms of affordability. We've got a very uh, a, a banking structure that's very focused on the single home and a mortgage. Imagine if we could have uh, a system where group uh, occupants of a group home could own shares in the house, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, security of tenure for renters is a huge issue too. Yeah. Great. Uh, are, there, are there any other... You, you reeled off a list of issues facing Melbourne earlier. Yes. Do you want to respond to any of the, the other issues that you raised besides uh, housing? Oh, look, I, th- I think another key one is, is mobility. Mm. You know, we have a, an instant response, it seems, to, to build more roads all of the time. And, and I think we've all experienced that the more roads we build, the more demand more we generate, the more clogged yeah. they get. Yeah. And yet we've underinvested in, in public transport. So first and foremost, investing in, in better public transport, reliable and safe and comfortable p- p- public transport, investment in bike lanes and, and accessible forms of transport, I, I think also some more innovation in the way we look at public transport. We talked about those radial bus routes, but, mm. you know, we've got the technology now to perhaps have an Uber for buses, for example. If we could have small uh, minibuses out in the suburbs going where people really need them instead of having to invest in big buses and, oh, yeah. and static routes and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. This is the kind of thing that could emerge outside of, outside of planning even, perhaps, do you think? Or do you think it does... Like things like that, it's just about sometimes deregulating, isn't it? Yeah. But but then that's the opposite in a way of what you're doing, which is making suggestions. I this is what I struggled when we were talking with Theo Kitchener last week. Yeah, around communities like giving more power to the communities to be able to do things themselves Mm. so often when we do a plan we'll come up with a whole list of suggestions and recently working out in the regions we came up with an idea about car sharing and making trying to get a public transport system that wasn't regulated so was managed Mm. by the community and what we we put forward a suggestion and then hand it over to the community to then get things going but it would be brilliant to be able to have a next step in the process where you could help the community a little bit to set those types of things up mm. but mm. then is that becoming what did Theo call it? Author- authoritarianism. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I feel I, like I, I'm well, a- I think it's a mistake to equate planning with regulation and I think mm. that's perhaps we've, where we fall into a trap into the past. I think that mm. planning is more of a process of assimilating this information and visiting visioning and engaging with people about a better future. So mm-hmm. if that involves perhaps pulling apart some of the regulation or empowering people or training people or or leading, yeah. then I think that's all part of the process too. And often we try and find out what the barriers and regulations are and then try to work out ways to get around them. <clears throat> Whether there's another way that you can do it that <clears throat> doesn't involve... Where will this cough go? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't involve um, coming upon legal barriers or something. Mm. Or if we can rewrite policy to make it easier for people to do things themselves. Indeed. Uh, so housing, mobility, uh, both uh, across the city and in local networks. I suppose health. We should talk about health, and health is a bit broad because you're talking about of an ageing population and so how you factor that into the urban plan. But health begins, I suppose, with diet and lifestyle. Yes. And you guys both um, are involved with 3,000 Acres, which is sort of one of many things popping up all over the world to help relocalise food and um, reinvigorate people's skill base and access to land. And you talked earlier about having places in the city, James, where multiple generations, faiths and backgrounds can gather. It strikes me that that's 
a good start, yes. Of, and food is a, a brilliant way to do that. To get, and that's mm. I think one of the things we've been trying to do with three thousand acres is get people together around growing and and cooking and consuming food. Mm. It, it's such a, a strong way to bind people and, and to create common experiences. We need more of that yep. in, in our big cities. Well, my partner said that when she was in uh, Central America many years ago, you could, could walk down the street in cities and pluck avocados and, and fruit and mangoes and all manner of things off trees in the city, and we don't seem to have that. Is I mean, that seems a fairly obvious place to start in planning to have it. Oh, you'd think so, wouldn't you? You'd think so, yeah. (laughs) Kate, your face was priceless. So is that a thing that is currently not the go? Is that... Is there a law on that? Yes, well, not a law, but there's a resistance within some councils to, um, for a number of reasons. One of them is a risk of people falling on squashed fruit and hurting themselves and suing the council. Another one is the fact that the maintenance departments in council are um, not able or don't have the time to have a more sensitive or difficult maintenance regime for non-standard Okay. <laughs> so this is, this interests me. So I'm in the process of finding out the blocks of land in in my area that are currently council owned, and there's a lot of them that they had they had to buy back when there was issues with um, amenities and bushfire zoning and all sorts of stuff. And I will be looking at some point in the next year or so to create a template so that the community can engage with that land, so that rather than becoming a maintenance draw mm-hmm. and a cost for council, they can potentially hand it to us for free or at a peppercorn rent or whatever and and then the community said so i think what you were saying before about not so much being about regulation but about you know putting all these ideas together in the pot that's what planning should be about surely there must be room for these public spaces to still remain in the i don't know the ultimate hands of council but to be given to groups like big groups small groups whatever to maintain to do the fruit tree pruning or to do the maintenance or to remove a lawn that's currently costing thousands of dollars of fuel per year and turn it into well it can be a sports a space for sports but the 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 families involved maintain it is yeah nah (laughs) <laughs> I, I think it, it has to happen that way. So we hear more and more about councils lacking money. Mm. And, in fact, it's it's almost a lost art. If you go back in time, maybe the 40s and 50s, you would have find, found more community groups that were responsible for town mm. halls and... Oh, sorry, community halls and, and public spaces. We, we had the, the local gardener that would look after the, the park in the main street of, of town. So I think as councils do become more cash-strapped, they're going to have to look for ways to empower communities to perhaps get re-engaged with, with mm. space and, and become a bit less risk-averse because yeah. I think a lot of the regulation is about concern about being sued. Yeah, right. So if they can remove themselves from the ones that are doing the maintenance or, or overseeing the place, then maybe that res- removes that risk as well. It becomes a much more sense of self-responsibility, self-guidance and um, respect for the amenity. And respect for citizens, you know, if we can empower them, train them and work with them to look after space in, in a joint capacity with council, then I think we're all better off. Yep. Cool. Um, Adam? Oh, it, it just occurred to me that that, that article that you, you had, Kate, was like the epitome of pushing Western lifestyles to a to a point of, uh, there was the one where parents are acting like private secretaries for their kids' playdates and all the rest. And I feel like we're, it, it just feels to me, I don't, I don't know if you guys resonate, but it's like we're at a point where we've done this experiment for a few generations now and like far more people 
that I know than seems reasonable, you know, suffer from depression. And, and I think that's probably true across the board. And so I, I feel like a lot of the impetus for the stuff you're talking about is going to come from just people going, well, I just feel like doing something different and that involves getting involved in community and growing some food and whatever else it is and then it can be as much the role of the planners as being this who who are tuned into a lot of the same issues but you are the guys that can go to council and go like hey it's already happening i've got a nice um, pair of shoes on and uh got got a phd or whatever and i'm telling you it's <laughs> yeah um, i don't know i think councils listen are... to the community a lot more than maybe they listen to planners oh really yes <laughs> so oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, communities have power the problem yeah. is lots of community members can't be bothered doing anything yeah. and just expect other people to do things for them yeah so you know it's very well just sitting there and saying oh you know someone will eventually do something really will they will they do it yourself. But, but there is a structural side to that as well. And we, yeah. t- we heard about obesity before. You know, part of the problem is we're also living so far from work, stuck in cars, stuck in traffic. Mate, we're too buggered and, and too tired to, yeah. to actually mm. get involved when we get home. Yeah. You, yeah. You a stressful job, sit in the traffic on the Monash Freeway for an hour. Um, are you going to go and mow the lawn at the local park after exactly. you've done all that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. Yeah. True enough. It's a, it's a systemic issue. It is a systemic issue. Definitely. And this show exists to question the systemic issues, and um, we will continue to do that. Thank you, James, for catching up with us this evening. Thank you. It's been awesome. fun. Excellent. Thank you, Jed, for hitting buttons in the correct sequence. Big bless Katie and Dan, you newlyweds. Adam, what's Thanks. coming up next week? Next week we are going to be talking to Tammy Jonas of Joni Farms, a ethical and regenerative farmer. Should be great. Awesome. We'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.